0: The cross of Jesus, a place of rest, of hope, of redeeming love. But remember, it's a cross. People get used to the symbol and forget the cruel reality that this is a place of suffering and of death and of undeserved judgment. Jesus' loss, our gain. Jesus' death, our life. Jesus' sacrifice, our righteousness. This kind of upside-down, cross-centered thinking is what we need. And in light of it, I, I want to pray. I want to pray for Christ's church and for our nation during the multiple crises that we are facing at the present time. Will you please join me? Father, it is easy to say to you, thank you for the cross. But eternal Son, Lord Jesus Christ, That was not an easy thing for you. Praise be to your name for what you did at the cross. That such a cruel death could become a pathway to glorious new life. There's hope in the cross, eternal God. And so I pray for Jesus and his cross to come home to all people during these crises. Through the cross bring hope and change to the COVID crisis we are facing. Bring hope and change to the economic crisis that we are facing. Bring hope and change to the racial justice crisis that we are facing. Through the cross, O God of hope, please, please fill us with hope and grant us real change. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you would, please take a Bible and turn to the book of Genesis. Very first book, Genesis chapter 25. And uh, while you're turning there... So this is it. This is my last sermon series as senior pastor of Stonehill Church. And over my 35 years here, I've preached all over the place in the Bible. I've preached from all four Gospels. I've preached most of Paul's letters in some way or another, except for First and 2 Thessalonians. I've preached from Hebrews, from Revelation, from Acts, Old Testament history, Psalms, Proverbs... Two times I worked through the book of Ecclesiastes. One time I preached from the Song of Solomon. I think that was sufficient. I've preached from the prophets, both the major and the minor prophets. I've preached Genesis in the past, Exodus, Deuteronomy. But here at the end, I want to come back to Genesis, back to basics. And partly because in this book, God gives us stories. Real stories about real people. And you know some of these stories and some of these people. The most famous are the stories about Abraham and Sarah leaving home. About Abraham offering his beloved son Isaac. There are the, the stories about Joseph and his technicolored dream coat, so to speak, being sold to, into Egypt by his friends, being the means of rescue to the, to the descendants of Abraham. But we're going to bypass all those famous stories, and we're going to lean in on the stories of a, of a, a lesser-known figure and lesser-known stories, the stories of Jacob. And a set of six stories from the life of Jacob. And here's the first one, his birth. 1800 BC, give or take. Let me read the text. Genesis 25, 19 through 28. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac... And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? And so she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. And afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. And when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. This is God's word. So let's be honest. Stories about Jacob are not what you thought I would be preaching during my final weeks at Stone Hill. And this scene, this birth scene, really? But actually, it makes total sense to me. And to help you understand why, I want to help you figure out two puzzles. Two puzzles in this text here that explain why the stories of Jacob are the best way for me to finish strong with my preaching and leadership here at Stonehill Church. The first puzzle has to do with Jacob himself. Before we look at the text, what do you think of when you hear the name Jacob? Some of you might think, well, you know, I really don't know anything about the the Bible, Jacob, but but I do know, like... uh, Jacob Gyllenhaal, the actor. Others of you, especially those of you who went to Sunday school as a kid, you hear Jacob and you think, oh yeah, he's the brother of Esau. And and maybe you picture a page from your take-home workbook with Jacob and Esau. But here's the thing. Even though we typically know Abraham, let's say, much more than we know Jacob, Jacob is the main character, the human character, in the book of Genesis. His history stretches over the entire second half of the book. Here we are in chapter 25. He's born, and he dies in the last chapter, chapter 50. The book of Genesis devotes more space to the stories about Jacob than it does to the stories of Abraham and Isaac combined. And stepping out of the book of Genesis, Jacob's name is mentioned 355 times in the Bible. And furthermore, he will be given a second name, a new name in chapter 32. We'll get there. That new name is Israel. And do I need to argue for the importance of that name? Jacob is a central character in Scripture. He's he's big, even if he is lesser known. But there are other adjectives that describe him, and they make for the puzzle. As we will see throughout the series, Jacob is deceptive of bad reputation, calculating, manipulative, competitive, self-serving. I mean, look at the text. We learn about him in the birth. We read verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac. Now let me just stop there. That phrase, these are the generations of. That's the way the book of Genesis is organized. Ten times that phrase occurs. These are the generations of, etc. And the idea is... This is the story of, or this is the official account of. So here, this is the story, or the official account of Isaac. But then what happens? Who immediately takes over and comes center stage? It's Jacob. Jacob takes over the father's story. And as occurs later in this chapter, he takes over his brother's position. Look at verse 20. Let's carry on. Isaac and Rebekah have been, we're not told here in this text, but we know from other texts, Isaac and Rebekah have been married now for 40 years. Isaac is about 60 years of age. And they've had no children. And that makes no sense when you've been told by God, when you've been promised by God, that you will have as many descendants as there are stars in the sky. So verse 21, Rebekah conceives... She's pregnant. Hooray. Verse 22, it's a, it's a hard pregnancy. The children struggle together. They fight against each other. She doesn't know that. That's the narrator telling, her, telling us that it's twins. All she knows is this is a, a really, really hard pregnancy. Boo. She goes to get some insight. And how we're not told, I wish we were, but she gets the insight and she's told in verse 23, two nations are in your womb. So now she learns, twins, hooray, but then they shall be divided and they'll vie with one another and the older shall serve the younger. This is crazy conflict and fighting adversarial relationship, boo, boo. This all plays out in the birth situation itself. Verse 24, the prophecy that she has heard is, is truthful. It comes to pass. Behold, twins in her womb. And verse 25, Esau is born. Details given about him. He's beet red. He has lots of hair. Verse 26, Jacob is born. And here's the key detail. He's grabbing Esau's heel. Now, what's up with that? In the womb, they were fighting. And in birth, they're fighting. Still, Jacob is grabbing the heel as if to pull his brother Esau back into the womb so that Jacob can be the firstborn, can be the privileged one with the with double inheritance. Jacob tried all the time to make himself first to beat Esau. So here's the puzzle. Jacob was a great and famous man who was totally self absorbed, selfish, and self serving. He wanted to get ahead all the time, he was competitive. He was ready to use people for his own ends. He wanted to win. He wanted to be number one, to be the, the firstborn, to get attention, to make whatever was going on all around him all about himself. And you know what? Every one of us, in our own way, is a Jacob too. Some of us are much more explicit and obvious about it, others of us are much more subtle about it. But in the end, we all want to be first. We all want to cut in line. We all want to get ahead. We all want the the, the blessing. And we all do what we can to get the blessing. We are all competitors. We use people. We manipulate. We take advantage. And while we we might believe that God is out there, in our heart, we, we believe deep down inside that, that, that He's there to help us get ahead. And so sometimes He just needs our help. This is hard truth. But it is a basic fact about every person listening right now. Alongside the other truth, it's twin that we are made in the image of God. Have splendid things about us, made in the image of God, we are also broken, selfish, fallen sinners. We all seek our own. Here's a nice little quote from the Internet. Winning isn't getting ahead of others. It's getting ahead of yourself. Now, when I first saw that, and suspect it's the case with you, be honest now, I said to myself, well, well, yeah, that's good. I like that. That's the image of God side of me. But then part of me said, oh, come on. Really? In this dog-eat-dog world? And this is why a series on Jacob. Because we are all Jacobs. Second puzzle has to do with God. And let me put the puzzle right out there. God calls himself... The God of Jacob. Dozens of times in the Bible. Now think about that, that name. I mean, when was the last time that you had someone introduced to you as kind of, hey, I want you to meet my friend here who's the, the president of manipulators.com. It just doesn't happen. But God calls himself the God of Jacob. And not just once. Twelve times in Scripture... God calls himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Just think about that lineup. He's the God of Abraham, incredible faith. He's the God of Isaac, trusting surrender. And he's the God of Jacob, (laughs) self-serving lies. That's crazy enough. That title appears 12 times. But then there's the title, the God of Jacob on its own or in some sort of variant, the mighty God of Jacob, you know, something like that. That kind of title, the God of Jacob, 24 times in Scripture. In other words, God is not ashamed to be identified with a person who needs to be rescued, who needs to be changed, who is a broken, sinful, self-serving human being. In the New Testament, God is not ashamed to be identified with disciples and people who need to be rescued and who need to be changed, who are broken, self-serving sinners. That's why I love the Gospels. Jesus, loving a tax collector, an extortioner named Matthew. Jesus, eating with prostitutes and sinners. Jesus, loyal to Peter, the denier Jesus paying a resurrection visit to Mary Magdalene, who had been a a broken, fallen woman many times over. Dane Ortland says this. Time and again in the Gospels, it is the morally disgusting, the socially reviled, the inexcusable and undeserving, who do not simply receive Christ's mercy, but are those to whom Christ most naturally draws near. Jesus, that is the God of the Bible, is the friend of sinners. God, in other words, is the God of Jacob. Or God is the God of Jacob's, you, me. All who are broken and realize it and turn to him. Now, in the remaining five stories from the life of Jacob, we will celebrate and go deep into the grace and the compassion of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we will do so for three reasons. First of all, we will celebrate the grace and compassion of God because for me personally, I would want my chief legacy to this church to center on the teaching and the preaching and the modeling and the living of the word of God's grace, his mercy, his compassion. Second, we will celebrate the grace of God because I don't think we can ever over-celebrate the grace of God. It is impossible to over-celebrate the the compassionate and merciful, the the, the gracious heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. On one occasion, the only occasion when Jesus really told us how he saw himself deep down inside, he said this, Come to me, all you who are weary and, and burdened, and I will give you rest. For I am humble and kind in heart. A lot of you know that, but don't believe it. We need to go deep, deeper into the grace of God. Third reason we will celebrate the great grace of God is because of all the crises that surround us right now. Pandemic, financial collapse, racial injustice, social unrest. It is an exhausting and broken world out there. A world that needs both hope and change. And the best way to get hope and change is to rediscover the grace of God and to be motivated by that grace of God to make a difference. To to reset oneself into the grace of the God Of Jacob. Let's pray. O eternal God. Father, Son, and Spirit. Hold us fast. By your grace. Sink your grace into our hearts. Change the way that we see and think. By your grace. May the grace of the living God the grace of the God of Jacob be ours in full measure to the glory of Jesus. Amen.